Hello friends. Welcome once again to Zenpod where we continue our conversation with Sean Blacksweet. Sean in the first part of our conversation spoke about spirituality, his internship at the White House, how and why he came to India, his view on poverty, how he turned an entrepreneur and his venture dream which was Baba Jobs. In part 2 we will speak about empathy, how and why we are not doing enough to alleviate poverty how can technology be put to better use the inequality that still exists in our society his idea marco polo his inspiration and his favorite book hold on and let's dive straight into the conversation with sean empathy and your take on it uh it's probably my favorite of human values <laughs> um Yeah, it's one of the things that I respect the most and when I see in others. I think it's very hard, right? To to be truly empathetic, to to truly try to feel what another person feels. Mm-hmm. Um all of my most despised people in the world are people that have very little empathy, right? Um and so you know uh, i'm a big believer in the golden rule right and that's one of the best most you know, the moral codes humanity's ever invented and it seems to underpin every moral and religious philosophy everywhere you should treat other people as you want to be treated and that inherently requires empathy right and so yeah i'm as i said i i think it's it's probably my favorite value sometime back you spoke about poverty not being static and and i completely agree with yeah. you uh but are we as a, more than a race are we are we some of the privileged few doing enough for alleviating poverty not at all <laughs> and one of the things that desperate that i desperately worry about with covid and i feel it yeah. so much right now is is the bubble right that we 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 only expose ourselves to news and information that we can that we want to that we have to make conscious decisions around it and that means I mean literally one of the things that inspired Baba Jab is because in my neighborhood mm-hmm. you know there was there were poor people and there was one day where there was this dude and I was walking and he was selling Q-tips in the street and I was walking and I almost stepped on his kid we'd put right on the street and she was sleeping on the sidewalk right because she was with her dad oh my god and uh and she was just on the sidewalk and i was talking to my friend i wasn't really paying attention where i was stepping right and it was one of those moments of just uh she's she doesn't have the same opportunities like clearly if you're breathing dirty traffic air like that's not a fair shake and one of the things that worries me is especially right now with covid if everybody's in their house and you know getting deliveries just like i do every day for food because i've got two older people that live next door to us and i don't want them to get sick my ability to be exposed to any other culture unless that i choose it is almost nil yeah and this is happening for everybody and and so i worry about our collective capacity to to sort of serendipitously be empathetic right when each of us are becoming more cloistered and the walls are basically coming in and it's just this little portal that we've got right now and most of the time i just rather laugh and watch like indian matchmaking or something. Yeah. Right. Uh true. And so I I worry about that a lot. Uh so no, I don't think we're doing enough to answer your yeah, question yeah. so it's it's becoming uh, it's becoming a lot of i me and myself, right? And 
and despite the fact, and you're really setting me thinking, despite the fact that we have more than enough to probably last our lifetime, uh, but we still, we still want to grab. Yeah. So uh, your love story with India, let's get a little, uh, tell us about it. And the reason I'm asking you this, Sean, is uh, I'm an Indian. India is not an easy place to live for somebody from outside. No. And, and no, you, no. you went there in the early 2000s, right? Or, or before that. So uh, that made it much more difficult. So tell us about your love story and <laughs> with India, especially and Bangalore. <laughs> I mean, for me, it was really fascinating and wonderful, especially in Bangalore, to see a burgeoning and blossoming middle class, right? Like I remember when I first came here, I was 28, uh, would go out drinking and hanging out at clubs. And I remember noticing a couple of things that I really liked, which is what I thought were interesting. Nobody had ironic t-shirts with words on them, Correct. right? When I first got here. And that just wasn't here. And I was like, why isn't this here? Nobody's making those sort of statements. And like, and I found it really cute. And I remember one of the things I loved about Bangalore versus Bombay and Delhi was when I went out to Bangalore, I felt like people were buying their own drinks. And when I felt, went out in those two other cities, I always felt like daddy was buying the drinks. Right? <laughs> well put. Uh, well put. And, and there was this other sort of joy and glee. It, it felt also like, you know, it felt like people were going out and experiencing the joys of 20s life like for the first time and, and clearly in ways that their parents never got a chance to, right? Like, you know, and there was so much joy and hope around that. Um, so all those things. And then, you know, over the last 10 years, the, the, the civic society that's formed in Bangalore, the protests that have come up, right? You know, when women were being harassed around the Pink Chubby campaign, how the city came together around that. Right. There was a whole bunch of things of this sort of consciousness, right? That is latent and it, it manifests and it's here, right? And there are think tanks and intellectuals and yes. philanthropic organizations and thinkers in this city and, and more broad in this country. But, and so anyways, I, I liked all of those things, right? And then I also had two other things that were really important. You know, I had first a job that I was really enjoying at Microsoft and then a mission that I found that I thought was my, the best use of my potential that I could possibly think of. Uh, and those kept me very grounded. And then, you know, I fell in love with a nice Bangalorean girl, right? And then, you know, it was 10 years ago, we got married and got a kid and got a dog. And, you know, there's all these things that just become more personal, right? Um, and, you know, for the longest time, I'll tell you, I miss, there are still things I've missed desperately about America in terms of, I still don't think it's gotten better, but like, I grew up in California. California is one of the best places for food on earth right in terms of we've got this huge agricultural belt in the middle of the state but more importantly it's a smorgasbord if you're living in any of the cities of so many different cultures right and and that is just lovely from from a food perspective the same thing with seattle and so there are definitely times where for years i'm like where can I get Malaysian food? Why isn't there enough Japanese food? How do I get good Thai food? Oh my God, I would kill for a burrito, right? And so, you know, and I'll get in trouble for saying this, but you know, we have dosa every day. <laughs> yeah. um, and I love dosa as much as the next person, but there is this thing of like, you know, I do 
I do sometimes wish that 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 smorgasbord of cultures that is I feel like the Bay Area. There are some days where I still miss that. Wow. Yeah, and no beaches in Bangalore too. Yeah, and then that's another thing. I grew up that's next to the beach, biggest, and so yeah, the biggest thing. So. Yes. Like I, you can tell, I, I don't know if you can tell. I'm wearing shorts right now. I wear shorts and flip flops <laughs> and have long hair, and I can do it. Yeah. I'm a Santa Cruz kid. Like, yeah. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Uh, you you worked in developed country. You worked with one of the most mature organizations in the headquarters. So that's a developed country, and then you moved to an emerging market like India. Um, yeah. So, in your opinion, Sean, what can what can people do or companies do to better use technology for these emerging markets? I mean, frankly, it actually goes back to empathy. Um, I feel like constantly people are making decisions around like what other people in some other part of the world who are poor right. or, you know, it's even their same city need and uh, without actually going and asking them. Right. Um, I think the upper classes since the beginning of history and the colonial classes have always had this thought that they know what is best for others. Right. And, uh, and that's not true. <laughs> if you really want to get a sense of that, you got to go talk to people. You've got to watch what's happening in their lives. You've got to do the research. You've got to look at what are the actual trends. And, and if you don't do that, then you're just sort of pontificating and bullshitting and, and making usually the problem worse. Well, you know, maybe generating good PR for your company. Um, but I do think, you know, you have to go like do the work and, for me, like the, the path that I always like the most is when I think about like what technology could go ahead and solve, I, t I like reading the, the social and demographic research because it identifies the problems that are real, right? It identifies, okay, these are, here are the problems in terms of people not getting the education pieces, right? right. right? And here's the people that make it and don't. And those are not technology papers, yes. right? And, and this frankly gets back a little bit to like the brown piece, which is I'm a big believer that innovation happens when fields that are usually separated come together, right? And so if you think about it, like the economic development and poverty research, they're not usually hanging out with the Facebook kids. They're not usually hanging out, right? And, and yet when they do, really powerful things can happen. But, you know, these groups have been separated for a long time, right? And so... You know, you ask the question of, of what, if you're at one of these big companies, can you go ahead and do? And th that I would say, immerse yourself in the real problems and opportunities of the people that you're trying to help. Not from a technology perspective. Don't have the bias of like, oh, I have a smartphone app idea. This is what it's going to do. Right. Just have the bias of what's the real issue in most people's lives? Why do people succeed? Why do they fail? Can we use technology to amplify one and hopefully lessen the other? Right. Um, and, and that would be the, the suggestion I make. And then and then the cleverness in all of this is to then say, well, that big company of yours, it's not going to listen to you unless you can basically figure out, OK, there's a revenue opportunity and there's a profit opportunity. here. And so you have to put on that hat. Right. But I think it starts with knowing what the real problems and opportunities are and then thinking, OK, what are the things that technology might be able to do about it? And then asking yourself can we make money out of this? And if you can find that holy trinity, then you can go to the mid-yards of the world and say, I need $10 million to do X. And you'll probably get funded. Yeah, true. 
you know, yeah, while there is a lot of, uh, especially in the last few years, there is a lot of CSR activities and all of that is happening. I, I personally don't believe uh, technology giants, and there are all of them in Bangalore or India, are doing enough to probably improve livelihood or overall social development. You know? I mean, of course they can do more. I mean, I think the problem, frankly, is there's not enough study. We have 150 million, mostly men in this country, that come and work in cities and then go back at harvest time. They don't really have the right to vote in the cities where they operate. They don't have any political power. They don't have social capital in those cities. And these are your doormen and your drivers and the people that work at your restaurants. And they have a very different set of needs than, frankly, your maid, right? And so, because, you know, your maid, actually oftentimes has been established in the place where she's living. It has kids in school. And that's a very different set of social capital and dynamics around how she's operating than than men. Again, I I feel like for a lot of these firms, I don't know if they're doing the deep enough work to figure out what's actually happening. How has COVID, who just sent everybody home from working in the cities, actually change the economic opportunities that are available to all these people. And there's been massive dislocation. And basically we've just been through a period of people burning through their savings. Um, And then I think the hard work is going to come in the next six months. And so the question is like, how do we think about opportunity when social distancing still has to be case? Right. And I don't have an answer to that. I would love to see more people leading the conversation on that of like, okay, we're running these 10 experiments to see, can we figure out how to do remote work? And we've got four different ways that we're operating it. And here's the research. And oh, by the way, we're publishing it. Like, I would love to see that going on right now. But again, you know, it's this thing of like, I I read the news and I get to see the news I do and maybe I've missed it, right? Yeah. No. So one of the, one of the things that I was, I was talking to somebody the other day and I said, an opportunity now post COVID for companies is probably considering that there are going to be no more offices and we, you and I won't go be work in the same room. Uh, maybe reach out to the villages or the tier two or the tier three or the tier four towns and, yeah. and hire them and uh, maybe give them a computer or give them the infrastructure to work and contribute. Right. And maybe that way the employment uh, will uh, spread all across the country. Maybe poverty in different places will come down. I, I don't know. I mean, that's one of some of the things I think earlier you wanted people to come to work, you know, now you don't need to. Yeah. No, I mean, that's just one of these things of like, I agree with you. Those seem like worthwhile experiments that we should be running. Right. Yeah. And so, uh, and then iterating and then changing what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and, you know, maybe the model is you teach your folks to use the computer. Maybe there are remote work opportunities within it. I don't know, and I don't think we're going to know until we try. And the one thing I do see often is you take something like that, right. like for the entirety of the 15 years that I've been here, we've been talking about what it could mean if there's a, a computer kiosk in the village and how that's going to revolutionize all the villages. And it clearly hasn't been true, right? And so I feel like for any of these ideas, we have to apply rigor, right? We say, it's a great idea. We should try it out. We should get a thousand people. And then if it doesn't work, we should look at why it didn't work so that the next person doesn't learn from that experience. And again, this sort of building of knowledge. I mean, one of the reasons that I feel like social work, frankly, is so, has made so little progress versus medicine, versus yes. software, yes. is that we don't all publish, right? <laughs> we don't all read each other's papers. We don't have full absorption 
of every lesson you learned by operating in 50 villages doesn't get conveyed to the next person. And the next person who's just really passionate and wants to do the right thing is just going to do that, right? Regardless of whether it worked or not. And so I think that's one of the things that makes, frankly, social work harder than other fields is we, we don't know all of the failures and lessons of everyone else. And we don't even know if those failures and lessons are, are relevant in our space. Maybe the world is different now. Yes. The world is different. Everybody didn't have like a $50 smartphone and they do now. And, yeah. and so I guess for me, it means that we should be much more experimental and much more rigorous about those experiments and then try our darndest to publish them to everybody else that's trying these things. And I feel like if we do that well enough and we make that ecosystem, uh, we might be able to make some real change. Any exciting idea, Sean, that you're working on currently and would you be willing to share that? I know you're always full of ideas, right? I'll give you a little context of why I work at Marco Polo. Um, okay. So Marco Polo is like a video chat app. Okay. And uh, you're like, that's a weird one. Why are you working on a video chat app? And the reason for that is when I first installed it, I, and you know, I'm separated from a bunch of my loved ones that are 11 and a half hours away in terms of time zone. And I've got kids and they've got kids and we don't get to talk to each other very much. There's something about looking at someone's face and being able to talk for as long as you want and for them to be able to see that and to say, this is just for me that I find really inspiring. And the first time I used it, I had three conversations where like people were crying on it. Oh, nice. And I said, there's something about the level of human connection that may be possible when people are divided by space and time mm -hmm. and felt like everybody should have access to that. So um, especially like migrant workers, like if you take the people at Baba Job, you know, yeah. if you're working as a guard or a driver and you have a 12 to 12 a.m. shift and yet your mom is back you know, in the village and working on a farm and she doesn't have a time alone piece. So when do you talk to her, okay. right? How do you create that connection? <clears throat> if your brother is working in Dubai and you're in India, right? You're always off, right? And so this fundamental and very human need for connection, I do think we have ability to, to accelerate that and help that problem. I think it's either us or somebody else is, is going to do that in a way. And I think that's one of those solutions that that's relevant to every person on the planet. And so I'm very excited about that. Um, at this point, I think that's all I'd want to talk about. <laughs> um, you. you know, ask me again in a year. I might have other things. There's other things that are brewing, but they're not as well baked. Uh, and so we'll see as they come. Super. Success. What does it mean for Sean? It's funny. I, I asked this question of others. So I haven't been thinking about it enough for myself. For the longest time, it was, you know, like, like the Steve Jobs for it, like to, to leave or Steve Jobs for to leave a dent in the universe, to try to take advantage of my potential to make the most amount of positive impact. And, and, and I mean, really, by positive impact, sometimes people say like, well, if you created hotornot.com, you had impact, you had an idea. And it's not actually what I mean. When, when I say impact, I usually mean like in a measurable, like UN sustainable development goal kind of way of impact. And that's one of those things where I feel like the yeah. phrase impact and tech for good often gets taken over, right? Like, I'll be frank. I don't know how TikTok pushes forward their UN sustainability goals, but yeah. it had an impact, right? <laughs> um, and so I don't want to make the next TikTok. I have no desire to do that. I don't think that's a good use of my time. So for the longest time, it's been, okay, I want to do things that are basically going to make an impact in a measurable way that's, that's positive for the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, I will say... I think I've modulated that a little bit with the 
and to do so in a way that allows me to also be a healthy human being. <clears throat> I think one of the things that people completely underestimate as an entrepreneur or a founder, and especially if you're one that's mission driven, is like how much that thing can like take over your life and you know lead to pain in your relationships and lead to neglect of people that you love and lead to abuse of your body. Right. And uh, and then you, you know, you end up like those people in DC, you burn out and then say, you know, I had those ideals in my youth, but they're gone now. I'm just gonna try to be comfortable. And so as I guess I've gotten older, uh, I want to do both, right? I want to do, I, I haven't given up on the dream of like, this brain should be leaving a better world in a way that we can measure and has widespread impact. But I also want to do that in a way that is healthy for me and my loved ones, right? And creates an environment where, you know, I don't grow fat and old and die of a heart attack like my grandfather did when he was 16. He was an entrepreneur, right? And so I worry about that. And uh, so again, so that, that's my definition of success is, is both of those. Someone who has inspired you. Uh, I have several. I'll name a super geeky one. There's this guy, uh, I'm going to butcher his name. I think it's Brian Eaton. I, I apologize if I get this. It's Brian. And what I think is interesting is he's the founder of WhatsApp. And uh, so like the tech entrepreneur, I, I get really inspired by him or rather think he did a great job in terms of here's a guy who with like 19 engineers. Yeah got to 200 million users uh, in a way that allowed them to communicate across the world globe for free. And it was, I also love the fact that it was, it was a dollar a year if you had an iPhone yes. and it was free if you had an Android. Because this whole point is if you can afford an iPhone, you can afford to pay us. It's going to be free for everybody else. And it's like, that was the most ingenious monetization scheme I've ever heard of. And you know, he figured out how he could make this super nimble, only working with great people, hyper leveraged 19 people changing the lives of 200 million and then 300 million Facebook bottom and, and to do so with, you know, small number of people, super of impact, allowing them to connect with the people that were important to them. And then, you know, did the things that, you know, then basically took all that money and said, okay, I'm going to join the board of Facebook. And the only thing I care about is that we do encryption. And so for three years, that's all he did. Right. That was the only feature where you think about it that Facebook came out with. And when he wrote the deal, he's like, no, we're not going to have any advertising in it. We're not going to do any things. And everything is encrypted. And then the moment he exited, he put $150 million in the signal, which is a freaking WhatsApp clone, right? That, you know, Ed Snowden recommends, right? Wow. And so I admire his. And then on top of that, in the midst of all of the Russian hacking, he puts on Twitter, it's like, uh, you know, I'm leaving Facebook, the company that gave him billions of dollars. Right. Um, so I think he's a funny character. Right. Um, that was clearly did a lot of things right that enabled him to basically make some of it change a lot of people and then kept a really clear moral stance about what it means to make a communication product in a, a world where he doesn't want surveillance. And so when I think about like companies that I do admire in their journey, that's clearly one. Your favorite book and why? Um, I know you mentioned about some one book, but. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I, honestly, it would have to be non-zero, right? Uh, because it gave a unified view of all evolution for me, right? Um, from, from literally the microcellular level 
all the way up to the UN, right? And like, you know, the coming alien wars. Uh, I've, I've never had a book kind of expand my mind and also my moral framework as much as that one. I remember you spoke in one of your TEDx, TEDx talks about um, interconnected, interdependent and a trusting world. Um, yes. How will it look like uh, and how close are we really to this on, on a more a pragmatic view? Are we really close to the reality? Or So I wrote a paper when I was a sophomore in college. Uh-huh. And it was based on Robert Putnam's earlier work. He, wrote a, he was a political scientist. He wrote the book Bowling Alone. Okay. And he looked at how social capital changed with the advent of television. Okay. Right? Um, and basically, I had this fear, and I, I know I'm bra- bragging a little bit, in 96, that because the internet enabled anyone to be a publisher, people could narrowcast to basically only consume things mm-hmm. that already um, reinforced their own opinions right? and uh, things they already believed. And we are certainly seeing that. And I, I worry that our perspectives are diverging, that I think there's a form of madness, literally madness, that the, that the internet creates. And you see it in extremists, and unfortunately, people are very close to my life, that you know, in terms of conspiracy theories and going down the rabbit hole of it, where everything is fake, right? Um, and that is a big threat, right? And then on top of that, the fact that you have these companies who built their advertising-based business models that are all around essentially showing different versions of reality to different people. And that, because that's what a marketer wants to do. They want to narrow cast their message to just the people that are most likely to buy their product, which means that each of us has an entirely different reality. And so... I think, you know, that vision of competitive, of connectedness is imperiled, right? And so, like, I have, I haven't written about this one very much, but I have a rather radical idea of, like, I don't think, I don't think companies should be allowed to do person-based targeting of advertising or any content. Okay. I think if you want to put an ad on Facebook, mm-hmm. you, you can specify a language mm-hmm. and you can specify a place. Mm-hmm. That's it, right? You can't say, I want this to men. You can't say I want this to be teenagers. You can't say any of those other things. And thus, you know, if you want to basically put up any piece of content, we all got to see it, right? And so I I do think we are to the point where if we sort of let these things go in their own devices, I think we will create all sorts of demons in the minds of humans. And, And I think that is a great threat to a vision of interconnectedness and trust that is the other alternative. But yeah, we're in a scary place, right? I keep thinking about the great filter, right? You know, about the, the great filter of why don't we see other intelligent life, right? Like we've been looking for 50 years. Why, yeah. why is there nothing? And one theory is maybe life snuffs itself out and via nuclear war or climate change or the AI apocalypse or, I mean, it is like Elon Musk talks about this a little bit and I don't love him, but I think he's got a point. It was like, we seem to be creating more and more existential threats, right? If you go back a hundred years, we didn't have that many existential threats. Like we've invented like four or five, at least four in the last century, right? Um, And so, yeah, I'm worried. I think we need to be really cautious. And and that hopefully I think that reinvigorates this thought of like, well, that means 
desperate people. We don't want desperate people in the world. We want everybody to be able to, to not have to worry about those four things so that they can then worry about the future, right? They can worry about our collective future. And if, if you don't have enough to eat and you don't have a place to live and you don't have dignity, you're not going to worry about the future. And if you're not worrying about the future, then you're going to do things like, you know, be an extremist, vote for terrible people. Right? So I don't know. I'm, I'm worried like anybody else, but I'm also, I'm hopeful given the history, actually. Like mm-hmm. humanity has done better. We continue to do better. So I, I don't know. I hope we get there, but I think we need to be vigilant. Yeah, hopefully we'll get there. Uh, in, the, in the quest for gaining more, reaching higher targets for ourselves, I guess some of the basic human values are, are clearly being left behind, right? And while people who are, and I, I see this in organizations uh, very often, while people who are at, at the middle levels talk about it, but when they, when they probably get to leadership levels, they have left those same values behind. So I'm, I'm hoping that we, we produce a great, um, and I work with some, been very fortunate to work with some visionary leaders and who've been really good and empathetic uh, and uh, yeah, let's well, I think the thing that's tough is you have to, I mean, this is one of the reasons I left Microsoft mm. is I couldn't figure out, and I was pretty clever at these things there, but I couldn't figure out how to make the business case strongly enough right. for Baba Job yes. that aligned with something that Microsoft, the richest company in the world should go ahead and do. And because I was just like, you know, we weren't classified. We didn't do stuff really around phones. We weren't doing things that were just for one market. Um, and so in my own head, I, I didn't think I could convince the company to go ahead and do it. And I think that's your, that's your reason why. And that is companies have a few and very limited strengths. And if you want the, to change the direction of the company towards social good, you've got to figure out a way that that social good is going to make that particular company more money. Right. And sometimes that contortion is impossible. Yes, agreed. The best piece of advice somebody has given you, Sean. The one that comes to mind right now is by Anandan, who is my boss at, and my good friend at Microsoft Research. And it's very simple. It's do what you love. And it's, it sounds like a silly thing because like I've been saying this phrase myself in the last 15 years and then freaking WeWork came along and then put it on their slogan that annoyed the hell out of me. But it, there's a point to it. And then I think one that I've learned on the hard way is like, you know, in the end, optimize for the people that you want to work with more than anything else, more than the mission more than the charter, more than the money. If you optimize for working with really positive, wonderful other people, your odds of being able to do something important, but also importantly, have a reasonable life uh, and a happy life is just much stronger. So in the end, for the people you work with and the the good people around them. And my my last question to you before the small rapid fire, uh, and, and this is more mainly for the listeners and I've, you've been through this. You've been very, very passionate and actually have um, put your money where your mouth is and been very vocal about empowering the socially challenged sections of our society. Uh, what can we all be doing more in our own small ways, Sean, that can make a, a ripple, that can create a ripple effect across positively? I mean, I'll be honest, I'm inspired by a good friend of mine, Huda. And right now, like she's just focused on feeding two families in her neighborhood. Right? And so she is doing charitable work in the most localized way you can imagine, right? And that connection to people that, are, that we know, that we can feel, that we can see that impact is the thing that then emotionally sustains us and inspires us usually to go do that bigger, better thing. 
And so I would just say, take that small thing that you can control where you've got skills and you can do something about it and do that. So uh, I just think all of these things start at home, right? Yeah. And, uh, Very nice. So yeah, start there. Brilliant. Brilliant. Uh, small rapid fire, um, just to ease the, you, you left me thinking for sure, but <clears throat> at Sean is a, American. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best one. Uh, technology is? An amplifier. Very nice. Entrepreneur is? Arrogant. India is? Uh, Difficult to sum up. Awesome, uh, Sean. It is really inspiring. Really, you're much deeper than, than what I thought and uh, what I read about. Uh, your answers... Uh, while put very nicely, clearly drive home a different point in terms of, uh, you know, for me, a couple of takeaways, and this is for the listeners as well. We are not doing enough um, for the society as a whole, for the community. While we may like to believe that, I don't think we are doing enough. I think corporations need to step up as well. And I think overall, um, I liked what you said in your talk where you said, don't look for a technology solution and shove it down people's throat. Look for actually do research around what is what is bothering you and 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 then maybe yeah surely go and build a technology for it build a solution for it but maybe maybe the lady next door just needs two square meals and you don't need technology for that uh, absolutely so uh, brilliant uh, on that note sean i want to thank you very much for agreeing to do this i know you're busy. Um, it was really fun it was really fun thank you thank you very much sean thank you thank you bye-bye